Good morning, First Baptist Church of New Orleans. I want to thank the, the faithful of you who have come during Mardi Gras weekend. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that I learned whenever I became a resident of New Orleans about a decade ago um, was how seriously New Orleanians took Mardi Gras. And uh, one of the things that I also learned on that is that means that there's this, this pattern that New Orleans residents often follow, which is Mardi Gras is very important until it gets here and then they're gone. And so, uh, so we're seeing the reflection of that this morning. I'm thankful that, that you are here. This morning, I want us to, to open up to Psalm chapter 2. We're going to read Psalm chapter 2 this morning. And that's going to be our text for the sermon. As you turn there, you're going to go ahead and see that in the, the first words, maybe even in the heading to the psalm, uh, that the, the psalm is, is spoken in, in a way that addresses the, the chaos of the nations and the raging of the nations. That's definitely something that we can sympathize with right now, isn't it? It was about two years ago for most of us that we were introduced to a new term, or at least there was a term introduced to us in a new way. Pandemic had been a term that we probably considered as being something about a different time or a different place. And all of a sudden it came charging into our lives. And here we are two years later, and there's still so many ways that we're reminded that we live in a time of a global pandemic. And then Thursday, we, we heard the news that Russia had invaded Ukraine. It's a conflict that we knew had been boiling for quite some time. And over the last few days, a lot of us have been watching the news and, and checking different news outlets just for these hourly updates on, on how for the first time in many ways since the Second World War, there's a full-scale ground war happening in Europe. And so we see these kind of things happening, and we consider that as we look at that, we see the, the chaos of the nations. A lot of people have discussed it, especially with what's happening in Russia, it kind of seems to fall into a pattern. It's the kind of pattern that in the past, when we look at it historically, it's caused just massive global conflict. A lot of people have said, this is how world wars happen. And there, there is a truth to that. And we're praying that that pattern doesn't continue and that God mercifully interacts and that there would be peace and the preservation of life. But I also want us, as we look at Psalm chapter two, to consider another pattern that the Bible lays out for us about the raging of the nations. We're, we're, we're sometimes content to just look at these human patterns of history, but I want us to consider as we read through Psalm chapter two, how it is addressing this global movement of God's purposes in history and specifically how the raging of the nations is going to come into intersection with God's plan in his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at as we read Psalm two. As we read Psalm 2, just let me remind us of a couple of things. First, despite what we might hear on Facebook or social media outlets, there is no predictive prophecy in the Old Testament or New Testament that explicitly, that, that explicitly names Ukraine or Russia or Vladimir Putin or, for that fact, the United States of America. So I, I know that people might be out there talking about bears and different symbols. And if that's something you ever want to talk about, we as your pastors at the church or others in the church, we'd love to talk to you about that to, to see what the Bible is saying. But despite the fact that the Bible doesn't explicitly talk about this instance, what we do see is that the Bible, by, by just the opening words here of talking about the raging of the nations, does want us to consider the, the way that God's sovereign rule over the nations comes into contact with the actual way that we live in our world. So how are we going to do that? Just very quickly, let me take us to two passages of Scripture that I hope shape the way that we read Psalm chapter 2. The first is this. I want you to consider Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. 
can turn there if you want or just listen to these words. In Genesis chapter 12 and in, in verses 2 and 3 in particular, God makes a covenant with Abraham where he says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what's the fulfillment of this promise? That God is going to make a nation out of Abraham that is ultimately going to give us Jesus, the Messiah, who is then going to gather all the nations in to be the people of God. We see that in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. This is what that says. All those in Christ are included in the promise to Abraham. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So why would we read these texts before we read Psalm chapter 2? Because when we consider Psalm chapter 2 and how God is speaking to us, I want us to understand our identity is not to locate ourselves as citizens of the United States of America, though for most of us in this room, we are and are blessed to be so. It's not for us to just consider how one nation is going to fight or be in conflict against another nation. Instead, it's for us to put ourselves in the same place of the original audience, this text, to say, as the people of God, how will our God respond to the raging of the nations? And so with that in mind, let's look at Psalm chapter two. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now kings, be wise. Receive instructions, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in the way. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. Let's pray together, church. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this truth. We are in a time, Father, where, where we are experiencing global conflict. And Father, added to the global conflict, we're experiencing many personal conflicts that, that the, the scope of which only you know are represented in this room. And so, Father, in our time of chaos and conflict and concern, we pray, Father God, that you would allow us to see that you have spoken to us about these issues in your word. And Father, may we commit ourselves to make your word the authority and in our lives as individuals and in the life of your church. Father, remind us that we can do this because your word is perfect and true. And Father, remind us also that my words comes from the lips of a sinful man. If I say anything that's out of accordance with the truth of your word, then as your Holy Spirit moves among this body of believers and guides us to bring us to the scriptures, may any error I speak be identified, may it be brought up to me, May I repent of it before you and before this body so that First Baptist Church of New Orleans would move forward in purity of doctrine. Not that we would puff ourselves up, Lord, but that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. 
and be your servants, ambassadors of your gospel to the nations, which are your inheritance. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's look at this text. So I just want us to go through, and, and you can see as you read the text, this breaks into just four sections. If you want to look at the sections just as far as who's speaking and how that's working, we have in the first section here the, the kings of the nations speaking in verses one through three. In the second section in verses four through six, we have God responding to the rebellion of the nations. In seven through nine, the anointed king speaks and tells us about the mission that God has given him. And then in verses 10 through 12, the inspired author of the Psalm says, with all of this in mind, this is what the nations ought to do. So I want us to follow that as we go through. We're gonna follow that pattern, seeing in all of it how, how this addresses the rebellion of the nations. So first in verses one through three, I just want us to see that the nations are raging. Verses one through three, the nations are raging. So we can ask the question, why are the nations raging? This is a good point for me to, to just clarify some things. So I'm not a, a political scholar, not a historical scholar. Like, like most of us, if we sit down and we talk politics, I'm pretty free to share my opinion. Those of you who know me know that unfortunately, I'm free to share my opinion on most things. So you should keep that in mind when we're talking. So, the, so, so, so that's something that I enjoy talking about and a lot of us do. But my purpose this morning and our purpose is the people of God is to not to come and ask the questions, why are the nations raging? And to understand all the geopolitical situations in our world today, things about treaties and cultures and history. Instead, we look at the text and we ask the question, why are the nations raging? Notice, as we look at these first three verses, especially verses one and two, that it makes it clear what it means by the fact that the nations are raging. They are in a posture of war. Look at chapter two, verse one. We're asked, why do the nations rage? It's possible that your translation should, would say conspire. The, this, is, this is referring to them mustering together their armies. The word here is, uh, it, why, why are they getting together in such a noisy fashion? Why is it that they're posturing their armies for battle? The, the second part of verse one, why are they plotting? Why, why, why are they plotting? Even though as we'll see as we move forward, their plotting is in vain. They're strategizing together. This is an international coalition that the Bible is referring to, not just in an instance, but in this disposition of the nations throughout history against who? Against who is the rebellion? Against the Lord and against his anointed. And why are they doing all this? They're doing it because they are saying one to another, let's, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. Why are they doing that? Whenever I was a kid, I think back on my childhood. I don't know if this happens when you think back on your childhood. Dr. Jones is here. He's a psychologist. He might have to diagnose me after this. But when I think back on my childhood, I think of a lot of very embarrassing memories, very embarrassing memories about my childhood. Here's one that's kind of up there among them. I remember telling my parents, who, by the way, are sweet and kind people, I did not grow up with parents who struggled not to be tyrants to their children. They were sweet and kind people. And I remember telling them as a punk 14-year-old, punk 14-year-olds take note, I remember telling them that I thought they were tyrants, that they treated our home like they were the king and the queen, and that all of their rules were oppressive to me. And we see in the foolishness of a 14-year-old kid who grew up in a really good home, 
and had really good parents, a way of understanding the foolishness of these nations who owe everything to God, who owe all the blessings that have been poured out on them to God, who are going to find freedom only in God and in the rule of his anointed king as we move forward. And why is it that they are pushing out? What's the reason for this rumbling and disturbance of the nations? The reason for the raging of the nations is that the nations see God's good rule is oppressive to them. That goes back just to the foundation of what sin is, doesn't it? When we look in the Garden of Eden and we see how sin enters into the world, God has created these boundaries for the good of his creation. He has given them every good thing to eat and they go up to a tree and they take the fruit from a tree. And the only thing different, Genesis tells us about that tree, is that God said, everything else is good for you to eat, but not this one. And they, our forefather and foremother, as we have done and as the nations do, seek goodness in the places that God says there is no goodness, and that's how we end up in sin. That's what is happening here with the nations. The the disciples, the apostles see this in the early church. That's why in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John have been put in jail for the first time, and they're released and strictly charged not to preach the gospel, they come back and in a prayer that God would give them boldness to continue preaching the gospel. They cry out to God saying, we're not surprised, God, your word tells us about this, that the the nations are going to rage and the peoples are going to plot in vain. They're gonna set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed one. We're told that, that that's how they in the early church see this. I would just say here that as we think about how to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, who are close to our hearts and minds now, but also know that that connects us to a a whole community of global believers who are worshiping under the threat and sometimes under the actual reality of persecution from their governments and the people who are in control in their region. We should be praying the words of Psalm chapter two. God, we know that the nations rage against you and against your anointed king and against those who follow you. We're not surprised that as we see this, it prepares us to see God's response to the raging of the nations. So as the nations rage in our day, we ask, God, what are you doing? And then we're also going to ask God, what are you calling us to do? Let's look at what God is doing. Verses four through six. Second point, while the nations are raging, God is laughing. While the nations are raging, God is laughing. Whenever I was in high school, I went, to, I went to a school that even though it's not talked about as being this really great school, I had phenomenal teachers in high school. My favorite was Mr. Milton Bearden. He was my shop teacher. It, it, it was one of those classes and experiences that sort of changed my life. And one of the reasons it was so powerful for me is the way Mr. Bearden treated us in the shop. He treated us like our employers were going to treat us one day, like adults who needed to take responsibility. And so as you gained responsibility in the shop, he would, he would promote you and you would have leadership other over, other over, <clears throat> over other people in the shop. And this was a way of just building this, this identity and responsibility. And I remember one day whenever I was in the shop, I was leading a group and there was this guy on my team that got upset with another guy on my team. And, and he was just kind of being a jerk about something that had happened. And it became apparent pretty quickly. This guy was just super angry and he was being super unreasonable. And so he decides that he is going to just, just, just go after this guy who he's mad at. Here's the thing. That guy who was getting so mad was about this tall. 
that other guy that he was getting mad at was like this tall. So Mr. Bearden comes out into the shop. I'm trying to mediate this situation. Thankfully, the bigger guy is being pretty reasonable about it. But by the time he comes out, he's got a little dude held about this high off the ground upside down. So Mr. Bearden walks up to me. He says, hey, Corey, what's going on? I said, well, Mr. Bearden, here's the thing. This guy said that he was mad at this guy, and so he was going to whoop him. Mr. Bearden stood right there, and he pointed the guy upside down. He said, you said you were going to whoop him? And he said, yeah. And he just turned away laughing and walked back into his office. Why is God laughing at the raging of the nations? Listen to these verses. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. So here's what he's going to say back. Listen to that. This is what God is going to say back to the nations. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Let me tell you how folks in the Old Testament were going to hear this. It's important for us to understand how they heard it, and then that's going to help us know. Remember, we're reading this as the people of God how we should hear it when we hear that our God has set his king on his holy mountain. Essential for us to get any of this right. When they hear it, they're thinking about the the Davidic kings, the kings like David. In fact, it's possible that one of the ways that God inspires this, that one of the ways that, that, that God originally gives this to his people to be used is that as the king in Jerusalem is enthroned, these words are read. We hear about the, the, as a new king comes in, that the nations are going to rage, but God's going to laugh at them and he's going to put his king in Zion. And then the king says, this is the promise God has given to me. And then the people reflect on, this is what it means to be wise based on what God has said. So this is what it means. And we see this in the Old Testament, don't we? What, What are they waiting on in the Old Testament? Over and over and over. Every time they see a king, man, David comes, what are they waiting on? Hey, will, will he be the one that rules over us? And is this the one that God is going to call his son and give absolute dominion over the nations to? Not David. Is it Solomon? No. In any of those wicked kings that we read about in Kings and Chronicles? No. Is it going to be Josiah? Surely maybe Josiah, this eight-year-old boy king who worshiped God, who worships God in righteousness? Nope. He's struck down on the plains of Megiddo by the Pharaoh. None of those guys. Here's what's happening in the Old Testament. This is, by the way, how we have to, have to, have to read the Old Testament, seeing how it's pointing us to the New Testament. I will just tell you this, church, I think we would be missing something when we look at this and say, well, it was never about them. It was just a prophecy, a prediction about Jesus. No, I don't think it's just a prediction. Here's what I think is happening. It's much bigger than that. It's as the people read the Old Testament, they say, God laughs at the nations because one day a king is gonna rule that is going to establish God's absolute authority. And when the nations think they can conquer that king, God is going to laugh at them. And they're waiting on that king and waiting on that king and waiting on that king. And that's why the blind guy at Jericho gets it right when he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And that's the reason that when Jesus comes and proclaims himself to be the Messiah and the reason that every time we profess faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord, Jesus the Messiah, we are saying our Lord is the one that God has installed in Zion, his holy hill. And if the nations think that they are going to have victory over him, God is going to laugh. That's who Jesus is. This is how God brings us to pass in Jesus. Of all the reasons we might expect God to scoff, the aggression of the nations, we might not have expected that ultimately this was going to end in Christ. 
And so this makes us ask the question, so if that's what God's doing, if God is laughing at the nations because of what he's doing in Jesus, what is Jesus doing? Look at verses seven through nine. While the nations are raging, Jesus is conquering. While the nations are raging, Jesus is conquering. In verses seven through nine, we hear the words of Jesus telling us of the mission that the Father has given him. So so we've already talked about this. The, the, The way that Jesus talks about this is showing us that all of these expectations that people might have had of kings in the Old Testament, they've they've actually always been waiting on Jesus. And what does he say first? You're my son. Today I have become your father. Other kings in Israel might have thought of themselves as being like God's son because they were under God's protection. But Jesus is the son, the second person of the Trinity who is begotten by the Father, and this truth is vital. And if you want to see that it's vital, just look at how often the New Testament authors are quoting from Psalm chapter 2. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul goes into the synagogue at Antioch and Pisidia in order to help his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you know what he does? He preaches, and his text is Psalm chapter 2, and he's talking explicitly about Psalm chapter 2 verse 7, where God says that there is a coming king and he'll say, you are my son, today I have begotten you or today I have become your father. So this is why the author of Hebrews is going to cite Psalm chapter two, verse seven twice, once in Hebrews chapter one, when he's saying, hey, you think angels are great? Ain't no ever angel ever been called God's son, but Jesus is God's son. Hey, you think high priests are great in chapter five? No high priest has ever been called God's son. So the New Testament authors see what we should see, that in this, whenever God says that this anointed one, this Messiah is going to be the king who is his son, that's pointing us to Jesus, the son of God. We need to see this. Jesus' conquest is based on the father giving him the nations. Look at verse eight. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance the end of the earth, your possession. Stop for a moment. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Brothers and sisters, as you go out to the nations, as we go out to the nations represented in New Orleans, and as we prepare to go to the nations in short-term and long-term trips, as we share the gospel with our neighbors down the street, we are doing all of it, and we've talked about this so much. We talk about it so much as a church and as a denomination. We we do it because Jesus tells us in, in the power of his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've taught you. And behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That wasn't new. Psalm chapter two, what's the anointed one going to do? He's gonna ask the Father, give me the nations as my inheritance. You know what the Father's done? Giving him the nations as his inheritance. Sisters and brothers, just let me, let me ask that, that you and I, as the people of God, would spend time thinking as as we go about our efforts to be obedient to the call of God, to make disciples of the nations, which for many of us, I know this is the case for me, 
often comes to bear when we are challenged, will we share gospel truth with the non-believers that God has put in our life, even when it's uncomfortable? And this same command extends to those who in Ukraine and other nations are challenged to share the gospel at pain of death. All of us, whatever our situation, let our desire to share the gospel not come from thinking that I, if I do this, God will be just, just, just pleased with me and give me Jesus points. Let it not come from if I do this, the pastor will be pleased with me, or if I do this, it'll really spice up my testimony when I get to share with the youth group. Why do we share the gospel to the nations? Because God has made the nations Christ's inheritance. And Christ has made us his ambassadors, his disciples, those who are out making disciples on his behalf. So let's, let's let this passage reorient our understanding of what our missional charge is. It's not just going out and making other people like us. It's understanding that God has extended grace to us and brought us into the kingdom of Jesus. And so it's not about making people like us. It's about bringing people to the great king who owns the nations because God has given them to him. And let's think about this. Let's think about how this intersects with a time of global chaos. Here's, here's two things that I think that we can be very prone to do in a time like this one. I think in a time like this one, we can be prone to use our confession that Christ is Lord, leave behind everything we just talked about, about how our Lord has sent us out on mission, and instead adopt two sinful visions of Jesus that we see at opposite ends of the political spectrum that are both damaging to the mission that God has put before us. So here's the first one. Here's the first one. Our sinful minds want to make Jesus into a military figure and that we are going to go out and we are going to conquer on his behalf. This, just put it frankly, this is the type of rhetoric that makes it sound like if you love Jesus, take up your AR-15 and shoot the people that we say don't like Jesus. And if you don't think this is a powerful argument, I'll just tell you that in many of the conflicts around the world today, there are people who call themselves Christians who are trying to use that argument to send people into the fray. Let me just share two passages with you. What type of lordship does Jesus exhibit? This type. You should think about yourself the way Jesus thinks about himself. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see the nature of Christ's conquest? Not take up arms and go fight for me, but instead I will die and I will win the victory and you should think about yourselves that way as those who share in my victory. And that's just tough for us to get. It's tough for Peter to get, wasn't it? He's the first one in the New Testament who proclaims Christ as Messiah. Like, like first disciple who's gonna make that confession. This is what happens in Mark chapter eight. Listen to how quickly he gets it right and then gets it wrong. Jesus went along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say that I am? 
They told him John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of men. See how quickly we're like Peter? Jesus rules all things. Therefore, he'll give us the ability to kill our enemies. That's what Peter wants. We see that in Peter's story. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The way that God's Messiah is going to conquer is going to be through a cross in his resurrection. And we share in the victory. He's not calling us to go murder for the sake of the gospel. He's not calling us to take up arms for the sake of the gospel. Instead, what he is calling us to do is to proclaim the victory of Christ who was murdered and violence was done to him. And that's where victory lies. So one thing that we have to protect ourselves against is that our sinful minds are very quick to make Jesus a military figure or military justification. Here's the other thing. Our sinful minds may also be very quick to make Jesus into a figure that is some weakling, some sort of divine hippie who is going to say, if you'll just put down your arms and forget about things you're passionate about, everything will just be okay and it'll all work out in the end. And if we're doing that, we are missing verse nine. Look at verse nine. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. And if you're saying, you know something though, I don't know that we ever really see Jesus do that. No, you just need to read Revelation. Look, this is Revelation verse 11. As the seventh seal is undone and as the, the one worthy to open the seals rides forward, this is what we're told. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. It's Revelation chapter 11. Listen to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, to me, one of the most precious passages in Scripture, one of the most encouraging passages in Scripture, where, where God gives by grace a vision to our brother John from long ago so that we might be encouraged with this vision of how things are going to end, how our story ends. And John tells us, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. But listen to the words of the one seated on the throne. The one who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of the waters of life without payment. To the one who conquers, I will give this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. And we often stop there and say, do you see when Jesus comes in his glory, he's gonna give us good things. This is verse eight, but as... For the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Do you see the balance that we see here? What, is, what does it mean for, for, for the what does it mean that God is going to make the nations Jesus' inheritance? 
It means that his anointed king, Jesus, is going to conquer, and then Jesus is going to call the nations to himself, and that orients our role. We're going out to the nations. And it means that in times of global conflict, we have to protect our minds and our hearts and our identity as the people of God, that we are not the people that are saying, the gospel tells us that we're going to take up arms and have victory. I don't know who's gonna have victory, except that God is going to have victory and give the nations to Jesus as his inheritance. And I know this, I know that the method for that, that God has given us in scripture, the, the way that God wins this victory is not through my fighting, but for Christ fighting on my account and for the nations and that he died for us. And I also am told that those who refuse the refuge of Jesus will be punished by Jesus, who is also to sit on the throne as the judge of all humankind and all creation. So what are we to do in such times? Times like these, which if we're honest, aren't very different from all the other times. What do we do? Last point, verses 10 through 12. While the nations are raging, God offers mercy. While the nations are raging, God offers mercy. So what do we do? Let's just look at some imperative statements here that we can pull as as application from this passage. One, we orient our lives around the hope of King Jesus. Let me just flesh that out. What does it mean to orient our lives around the hope of King Jesus? Let Let me tell you this. We are a church and are going to continue to be a church that supports and appreciates the heroes who serve our country in uniform. That's that's not in contradiction to what we're talking about. We understand how there is this balance that, that those who call those brave men and women, by the way, we have families in our church right now who their immediate effect of this crisis is that they've got family members. We've got members right now that don't know if they're going to be deployed into to something involved with this conflict. So, 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 so we need to be very aware that we are a church that honors that sacrifice. But we honor that sacrifice because we know that our sisters and brothers who take up that command go not in the hope that, that they are going to have absolute victory because of themselves, but because their hope in Christ gives them the bravery to lay down their lives for the protection of others. We're also a people that can see the despotism of tyrants like Vladimir Putin. We're not a people that have to to juggle and mince words when these things happen. Sometimes we look at the raging of the nation and we say there's evil people behind this and it would be wrong of us not to see it. But our lives are not oriented around patriotism as the people of God. And they're not oriented around condemning wickedness in the nations we must be a people that see our hope, not ultimately in the brave men and women, not ultimately in, the, in hating our enemies, but we see hope in our confession that Christ is king of all and that he will win the victory and has won the victory through his death and resurrection. We must be a people that hears the raging of the nations and responds with the resounding proclamation that Christ is the king and the only victory is in seeking refuge in him. So we orient our lives around King Jesus. This orients the way we pray. We should be praying for rebel kings to see the futility of their raging. We should be praying 
that Vladimir Putin and, 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 and wicked men and wicked leaders throughout the nations who think that they're somehow going to build a name for themselves by bloodshed would see the futility of it all and to see that, that the God that ultimately they're rebelling against is laughing at them and beckoning them at the same time mercifully to seek refuge in Christ Jesus. We should pray for non-believers in war-torn countries that they would hear the truth of the gospel. We should pray that in times of chaos and conflict, that even those in our own country where, where, where when things like this happen, we ask, will, this, will this, this test, will this change our long-held feeling of security? We should pray that those questions ultimately drive us to the one true source of security that we see in these last verses. This is what we're told. Now, kings, be wise, receive instruction, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. And we should be praying that for all who feel the strain of such times, that it would drive them to the refuge that Christ offers, though all of us at one time were allied with those that rebels against him. We should pray for believers in hard places to be upheld in the gospel. As we're praying for sisters and brothers in Ukraine, and I would add, sisters and brothers who, who are in Russia and who the gospel is causing them to see truth in situations that are not acceptable within their country. We should pray for sisters and brothers there and sisters and brothers throughout the world who are oppressed, that they, like the apostles in the New Testament, would look at this passage and see that the nations are raging and the nations hate them because they hate Jesus. And therefore, that Jesus would work in them to ignite an affection for and a desire to see those who are oppressing them come to Christ and that they would be bold in their proclamation of the gospel and that the gospel would go out. And then finally, as we come to a time of invitation, we apply this as we look at this passage by modeling in our worship and in our lives and in our proclamation of the gospel that Christ is vanquishing the wickedness and evil in this world and that he is inviting us, wicked though we are, to come take refuge in him. As we close, sisters and brothers, let me just, let me just invite us to see something here that we should see throughout the scriptures. And that is this truth, that at the end of the day, the, the gospel is not defined by our cultural practices. It's not defined by a complicated set of beliefs. And I will tell you this, it's not defined by an emotional state that you were in once or twice in your life. Here's what defines the gospel, and I think we see it very clearly in this passage. Are you on the side of Jesus, the Messiah, whom God has given all authority, and are you seeking protection in him? Or are you exposed to the wrath of God and living among the rebellious nation? That's the question that this draws us to. We started very big talking about global pandemics and talking about global politics and, and wars thousands of miles from our borders. But those thoughts should draw us to this question. And I'm asking everyone here this morning, whose side are we on? And if we are on the side of King Jesus, we do these things. We pray for those in difficult circumstances. We pray the gospel would go out. We model worship and proclamation of the gospel in our lives. And if we are not, 
then I want us to hear based on the proclamation of the word, what we see in Psalm chapter two and throughout the scriptures. If you are not in Christ, then you are on the side of his enemies. And his word is clear. He, he graciously comes to you and mercifully makes an offer. Seek refuge in him now. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you and we thank you for your goodness to us. Father, we're very aware of our own deficiencies and of our cowardice. Of the fact that so often we decide that the way we're going to respond to times like these is with sin instead of righteousness. And I pray, Father God, that you would just call us in your word to an understanding that you alone have victory. Father, we, we close with this, this request to you that by the Holy Spirit, you would convict us and make it very clear to us whose side we're on. Father God, by grace, many of us are on the side of King Jesus. And we thank you, Father God, that this is not because of our works or our wisdom, but because of your grace to us. Father, anyone here this morning who is on the side of those who are rebelling against you, may you convict them this morning, not only of their sin, but also of the mercy that you offer in Christ Jesus. May they find refuge in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.